0: Thank you, Deb. That was wonderful. And uh, Steve just passed me a note before I um, came up and was commenting, you know, when Jesus comes into the room, everything changes. And uh, that's our prayer tonight, that everything will change and uh, deep DNA and neural paths will change. And that's the business he's in. So um, Alice and Josh are going to hand out a little... um, sheet of paper, which is just a uh, passage of scripture that some of you who know me well will know I I focus on this scripture quite a bit. Hey, little Edley's are back. (laughs) Um, That's fantastic. And uh, just pop that down for the minute, we'll come back to it and um, dwell in it for a little while. But we've had an incredible few weeks. In our family, and I know even in the church family, it's just been a little chaotic. My wife had a push bike accident and virtually broke both arms just uh, about three weeks ago. My car uh, head gasket um, blew up, and that was five weeks ago. It's still not been even close to repaired, and it's up in Armendale. We've got the Ferris's, we've got COVID, they kind of took them out. We've got the Leskies who've had some pretty serious stuff and I'm sure um, if we sort of opened the mic, there'd be lots of uh, crazy stories. Some good stories, you know, we had, um, we had the men's breakfast, what, last Saturday and uh, I kind of feel like, you know, this was a victory between the battle of uh, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness we've been trying to have this men's breakfast and we had floods come against us we had COVID come against us and we squeaked in the first men's breakfast of the year so that was absolutely fantastic you know the uh, the ground was still um, wet and soggy and and Rod's place just fantastic and and um, shout out to Waz and Kel and um, Rod and Um, James who set it all up and we camped out there the night before in the dark and Rod said to me now it's pretty soggy out there so if you drive in you've got to go you've got to follow me around this loop and so Warwick was first off and he got bogged with about 10 meters so we had to push him out (laughs) and then (laughs) (laughs) so it was pretty easy to push out then I went and I sort of got the right arc and and Kel came and, you know, Kel can do these things with his eyes closed. He was right there. And Anyway, James arrived late and I had to pick him up so because his van would never have made it. And uh, so he came down. And I said, let's go and get all the kit out of your van. And I was so busy talking, and this is so typical of me, um, to James that I drove the exact wrong path, got halfway back to the, the house and was bogged all night. And... Uh, so we had to leave the car there. But that breakfast was so much fun. And we discovered some incredible gold in our midst. We kind of knew it was there. But it was wonderful to, to hear the stories of gold. And what was even more wonderful were others to comment on the gold that they've seen. And that was an encouraging time. And you know, I think compared with a, a rough ragtag bag of fishermen, we're doing pretty well and uh, we might be small in number but you know the gold within us is very exciting and as I share a bit tonight I think we'll get an even greater sense of that. So then we had our first uh, on being a disciple and spiritual son and daughter on Tuesday and that you know that was a brand new experience and we had a great time and we got some fantastic people there and you know, I can't wait to, to get into that. We had Josh and Arliss, they were there. And even though Josh was kind of, you know, he's a, he's a nurse. So he's sort of coming in out of shifts, dripping with blood and going back to, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that was a great start on thinking and giving our attention to what was Jesus' plan of being a disciple. more the ways of Jesus? So we look forward to continuing that. But tonight... And uh, I mean, you know what um, Megan said, Tim's last message on orphanitis and the, uh, the father and son heart was one of the, the, the best explanations of that picture that, that I've heard. If you haven't heard that message, I'd go and dig it up off the Facebook page and listen to it. And in spirit, I'm right following up with Tim, but it's not going to be seamless and it's not going to be <laughs> too close. <laughs> Tonight... We're going to hit four words, okay? Have a think about these. We're going to hit chaos, we're going to hit maos, we're going to hit a Ramos, and we're going to hit osmosos. Okay? So, um, does anybody have any idea what half those words mean? Probably not. <laughs> okay, so let me sort of unpack this. Some of it's going to be geography, some of it's going to be science, some of it's going to be Greek, some of it's going to be geopolitical, but... Um, look it doesn't it doesn't take uh, an einstein to look at the world and go wow there's so much chaos out there at the moment and to some degree there's always a bit of chaos but at the moment it seems it's so heightened it's um and it's been a season that's just getting more and more intense um you know some days i think civilization's actually going backwards you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, we've been getting clever and smarter and richer and more organized and wealthier and prosperous. In the last couple of years, it seems like we're getting less prosperous, we've been getting less smart, we've been getting more confused. And you just have to take a, a couple of examples. You know, obviously, COVID, we all know COVID has just totally rattled the whole world, has undone so many norms and expectations. And although we're sort of hopefully coming to the end of it, Um, You know, there's future strains that are being discovered. There's monkeypox. There's downstream consequence from COVID. We feel it every day in our business. The supply chain is totally messed up and uh, we can't get stock. We've got nothing to sell in our little warehouse. And that's direct result of, you know, Shanghai shutting up their city for months. And none of the factories were open. It's chaotic in our business world. Um, even here in Australia there's lack of staff everywhere because people are quarantined or they've you know the great resignation the whole work employment situation has changed and you know my car has taken five weeks for them to get a head gasket off because everyone's been sick with COVID or this person's not here and it's just disrupted it's disrupted the planet and we haven't seen the end of that yet by a long shot We've got climate change, you know. Man, have you just read it recently? Floods in China, droughts in Britain, and fires in everywhere. Fires in California, and that just whether it's man-made or whatever it is, the climate is wreaking havoc on the planet and disrupting everything. And then uh, I was had dinner with a friend on during the week who's just spent two months in Europe, and he was saying he's he's a German and his brother lives in Germany. He was saying the paranoia in Europe at the moment is just extreme. Because you have the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that's disturbing enough. You've got all the refugee flight and flood of Europe. But now the madman is bombing a nuclear, the biggest nuclear site in Ukraine, and that you know is potentially going to be another Chernobyl in the heart of Ukraine. He's also got them all on edge with you know, using, retaliating with nuclear weapons if the West step in. You've got Finland and Sweden who have fast-tracked their entry into NATO because they're absolutely paranoid that after Ukraine, it'll be Finland and Sweden. And on top of that, you've got all the gas lines are being shut down, some in protest of Russia and other Russia is closing down and winter's coming. You have hundreds of thousands of people who worry they're going to freeze to death coming this winter because all they've got is gas to heat the houses. So it was quite a, uh, an education to hear him talk about this, this fear that is, is reaching a fever pitch in Europe. Then you've got America. Now, if you've been following the news of late, but the ex-president's about to get arrested for espionage the whole distrust of um, the Department of Justice, the FBI, all the legal institutions. Um, half the country doesn't trust the legal institutions or the institutions. And there's already seen history of violence January 6th. There's a poor FBI uh, officer got attacked by a guy just this, this week because of the distrust in the FBI and they had to shoot this guy dead. And there's a massive population in the US, which is kind of at uh, burning point, at bursting point. There's talk of a lot of violence. There's talk of, I mean, it's a bit rhetoric, but it's civil war in in the democracy of America. And democracy is actually on the edge in that place. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. But to a certain extent, it's chaotic. And... Here in Australia, we're very, very fortunate. We're removed from so much of it. We're a very wealthy nation. Um, but we do have our own chaotic stories in our lives and the journeys we're all travelling. We'll come back to that in a moment. We've seen megachurches dismantled. We've seen pastors leaving in droves. We, I heard this week Hillsong, had 60, Hillsong, New York, had 60 people in it last Sunday. We're normally there. They go round the blocks to get into that place. They had 60 people there. So things are changing. And things are chaotic. And, uh, you know, our own health, our own marriages, our own businesses, our financial situations, our own faith, maybe is chaotic. But I want to give you some, some thoughts today that, actually take that picture and I hope and I trust will bring a touch of excitement to it and a touch of hope and a touch of my role in that chaos. So what I want you to do is pull out there a little uh, sheet of paper you've got there and just read the story of the road to Emmaus. I just give you five minutes, just take your time and um, we're not going to ask questions but I just want you to have engaged in this passage before I go any further all right we uh, close Eli you finished (laughs) all right well let me um, let me just give it a little bit of background because on the face value this story is kind of quaint it's sort of a bit odd it's a bit confusing. But when it says later that same day, who, who remembers what day that actually was? I said I wasn't going to ask any questions, but there's one. <laughs> Resurrection Sunday. Yeah, it is. It was Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> But you know, it just it it floors me because you know this this I feel is one of the most understated passages for what is actually going on. You know, a lot was happening in Resurrection Sunday, and a lot had happened. And this little passage seems to get a little hidden. But as I've kind of spent my time on it, I've become convinced that this passage is like the Rosetta Stone of the Bible. And that around this passage, everything turns. And that this passage should get pinned up in our rooms and we should dwell on this passage regularly. But let me give you a little background, okay? Jesus had been obviously arrested. Three to six hundred men came to arrest Jesus on the Mount of Olives. They were disturbed by what he was up to. And then we know that story, how he was sort of tried and he was crucified. But what was going on with the disciples at this stage? Well, we know from the story that they were, how does it say it? Jesus says, why are you looking so sad and gloomy? And um, the, I think that's a total understatement. Peter, Peter the rock slash jelly had just denied Jesus three times because he was paranoid that Jesus got arrested, Jesus got crucified, they're coming after me, I'm not going to even acknowledge the guy. There was the total collapse of all of their hopes of the last three years had just collapsed. You know, it's comical when you hear, even on the night Jesus was arrested, the disciples are still arguing about, well, when the kingdom comes, I'll be number two. And... And, you know, they're arguing about this, and Jesus kind of goes, you know, three years we've been together, boys, and you've got nowhere better than that, that it's all about, you know, um, who's going to be too icy. And so they have no idea, but then he gets arrested. Can you imagine how they felt? That this guy who they'd been seen with, they'd journeyed with, you know, that had some, some great activities where they'd sort of... Passed out food for 5,000. They'd been sort of part of the healing ministry and got a lot of kudos out of that. They'd been there where there were some great sermons and, and demons exercised and they were kind of getting the blowback from that. And then this guy gets arrested and crucified. Can you imagine the, 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 the chaos going through their minds? And these two guys, I think, were getting out of dodge because if they stayed in Jerusalem it was a risky chaotic place to be and as we know from the rest of scripture you know the the Jews and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were busy sort of arresting crucifying beating the Christians so their world had totally collapsed and so they're on this road to this little village called Emmaus and This little occasion happens, which we'll come back to in a moment. So let me tell you that was what physically was happening. Let me tell you what was going on in the heavenlies at this point. And this is the understatement of what I think this passage is about and what Easter is about in general. That for the centuries beforehand, the millennia beforehand, the scriptures and the stories were around the age of men. There were the Abrahams, there were the Moses, there were the Joshua, there was the Joseph back there, there was the Solomon, there was the David, there was the Samuel, there was the um, Saul, and then there was the prophets. And the manifestation of God was typically in men. You know, the Spirit came on some of them, but the leadership of the nation, the religious um, initiative in the nation, the prophetic initiative in the nation was around key individuals who are very worthy to be heroes in our, in our minds and in our, in our own story. But it was the age of man. And at the death of Jesus, it was like the universe cracked. It was like something so cosmic happened where the age of man and the old covenant and the rules and the heavy yokes and the burdens, they cracked open. And the whole message of the prophet, priest and king in men came screaming forward into a funnel into Jesus and out the other side in the New Testament there was a whole new expression of what this story was about in the New Covenant. You know, there was an earthquake that happened at the uh, crucifixion. There was an eclipse. The, The sky went dark. There were bodies that were, you know, people were resurrected out of the grave. The veil got ripped. This event was so cosmic I kind of feel like there were black holes that were disappearing and there were stars that were forming. The whole physics of the universe cracked because of what happened at that moment when the Spirit of God went from individuals into the man of Jesus and then what? Let's read the passage. So here they are walking down the road, and Jesus says, you seem so sad. And they stopped, and one named Cleopas, who's ever heard of Cleopas before? Nobody. He's a nobody. He's a somebody, but in terms of the story, we've never heard of Cleopas before, right? Um, and one named Cleopas answered, haven't you heard? I <laughs> mean, This is such a funny... Interaction, isn't it? Here's Cleopas telling Jesus all the things that happened about Jesus. It's like it's it's hilarious. Haven't you heard? Are you the only one in Jerusalem unaware of the things that have happened over the last few days? And Jesus goes, "What things? Tell me about it." And so he, he says, "Well, gee man," and he had to be, I think, a little politically sensitive here because he didn't know who this you know his character was. Or he didn't recognize. He might have been. You know the temple police, or he might have—he might have been someone, you know, just sussing out these guys. So he says, the, th- "The things about Jesus, the man from Nazareth." They replied, "He was a mighty prophet of God, who performed miracles and wonders. His words were powerful, and he had great favor with God and the people. But three days ago, the high priests and the rulers of the people sentenced him to death to be crucified." we'd all hoped that he was the one who would redeem and rescue Israel. Early in the morning, some women, we'll come back to the women, the women are so important here, informed her for something amazing. They said, they went to the tomb, and they claimed that two angels appeared and told them, Jesus is alive, some of them blah, 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 but no one has seen him. Jesus said to them, now listen to this, what did, you know, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Come on. He would have said, oh, guys, I'm so sorry. You're so sad, so depressed. Your world's fallen apart. You must be suicidal. Hey, I've got some uh, medication for you. What did he say? The passion's beautiful. He says, why are you so thick-headed? Why are you so thick-headed? My world's fallen apart. Why are you so thick-headed? So, you find it so hard to believe that every word the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to experience these sufferings and afterwards to enter into his glory? And then beginning at Moses, I mean, wow, imagine this. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he carefully unveiled the revelation of himself throughout the scriptures. Now, they still didn't know who he was. It wasn't like this is talking about me, guys. He just explained it and um, as we see you know later on that uh, they pleaded something was going on something incredible was going on in this transaction and uh, Jesus sort of goes oh you know I'm going to go on to the next town now and stunned they looked at each other oh sorry then they got him to stay for dinner he broke bread another important piece we'll come back to that But as they broke the bread, they suddenly realised who it was. And for some reason, you know, why is this happening? Why is this, why did God keep Jesus from being recognised? And then why did he get recognised? And then why did he vanish? He just vanished. (laughs) This is, you know, hey, the marketing department would be horrified. You've You've just got these guys on board and you disappear. I mean, this is the beginning of picking up the pieces from the chaos. Let's go. These guys' hearts were burning, and Jesus vanished. What is going on? So, let me give you some thoughts and clues. You know, up to this point, Jesus was visibly seen as a man. He was visibly seen as the leader of an organisation that was causing thousands to follow him. He was seen to be doing signs and wonders. He was seen to be turning the whole religious and political world totally upside down. That was the Jesus they knew, but he had to move them, the disciples, into a new culture. With Jesus, the man no longer was there. It was Jesus, the Spirit, who was going forward. And if he appeared as Jesus the man, they would have gone, oh, phew, he's risen, they, oh, that's right, you said you're going to raise. Okay, let's pick up where we, went, where we left off. No, we're not picking up where we left off. We're picking up with an open portal for you to have the creator of the universe who just shook the cosmos with the death and resurrection... And brought all this enormous power and explosive activity of creation into your heart. That whole picture of Jesus walking with them, unfolding the scripture, unrecognized, is such a beautiful picture of the template and the way the new covenant, the way the future of the church operates. The man the leader, the priest, the prophet, the king. He's nothing now in terms of the human structure. It's the spirit of God in the form or Jesus in the form of the spirit of God coming into our lives, unfolding the scripture, explaining the story. Now, you, you notice what happened to them after they'd picked themselves up off the floor and, and uh, Jesus had disappeared? They were previously heading out of town. They were paranoid. They were in chaos. They were scared to death. What did they do? They went straight back to Jerusalem. Oh, wow, what a picture. What a picture. That something that went on here, their hearts burned, and all the chaos and fear that they were running from, it turned them around. Nothing changed back there. Hey, they were possibly going back to die. They were possibly going back to chaos. But something happened in their heart that took them back into their mission, back into their assignment, back to where their brothers were. So, an amazing passage. And, you know, I kind of feel like this picture of, they got down to the end of the Emmaus Road and then they turned back. This is this, you could sort of put a new fold in your Bible right there. Sort of like, that's all old before that? This is... Everything that happens from now on is like, wow, this is this explosive power beginning to to take root. You think what happened next? I mean, just even think about God saying to Jesus, okay, I'm going to send you down planet Earth. I want you to hang out with some crazy fishermen. I want you to do a few miracles. And I'm, I'm going to give you three years to do this, right? And I want you to change the world, change the course of history and uh, and sort of create a whole new kingdom. I mean, the concept is crazy. And then the plan of Jesus is even crazier. That he entrusts everything to these guys. He spends a lot of time walking in the wilderness. He, uh, When the crowds develop, he doesn't... You know, say, oh, we're going to have meetings every night. He walks away from them. He, you know, he he just doesn't seem to have an agenda or a busyness about him. And then he goes and gets arrested. And then he goes and gets killed. And then he's left it to the clowns, so to speak. That's, that's this amazing secular human picture. But around this passage is what is going on in the heavenlies, where this presence and power of Jesus is being transferred from the leadership into the men and women and it's being able to be released in us and as it happened with them change the world change the world you know no phones no cars no internet no tv no mass media change the world change the world because of this explosive force that was released now you say well where is that where is that in me I want to give a couple of clues tonight on releasing this explosive force and it is a a bottomless pit of um, exploration and a life journey but one of the, the first clues is that Jesus is so counterintuitive. The things he does are so counterintuitive. And so here he is, this new he died, resurrected, unleashed this power. What are the first things he does? What are the first things he does in that? This is a template. This is why I call it the Rosetta Stone or the Template. The first thing he does, who knows what the first thing he did after he resurrected, was resurrected. What's the first account? Sorry? The tomb? Well, he was, they didn't find him in the tomb. I mean, he obviously, when he resurrected, he left the tomb. But what was the first event? The first event was meeting Mary Magdalene. Now this in terms of a template and a counterintuitive way of Jesus. The first thing Jesus does in the new era is address a woman. Oh that's that's just not right. And he actually speaks to her, she recognizes him instantly. Master. And she gets so excited. And he actually commissions Mary I'll go into this another time, but he commissions Mary Mary was the first apostle. and the first apostle's mission was to men. The first apostle was a woman sent to tell the men about Jesus. That's a un- very unusual countercultural, counterintuitive way of Jesus. The women just suddenly got elevated in a ministry to men. To call them out, to call them up, to tell them the testimony of Jesus. This is one of the foundational pieces of the new covenant, the place of women. But let's leave that one. The second one, he talked to these nobodies. Why didn't he gather, why didn't he gather all the twelve? He did a bit later. But this very early story is just two nobodies he spent a few, a few hours with on the road, had a, had a meal and broke bread. Why? Why? Because this is the counterintuitive way of Jesus. Just the engagement of this man with simple lives changes the world. He didn't go into a mass market. You know, he, did, he, he turned up a few times. They say he probably gathered, met about 500 people after his resurrection. He left the whole plan to the invasion of these nobodies with the Holy Spirit to take it forward. He had to get out of there. He had to disappear, otherwise the weight of the mission, the release of the power, would never happen. So, the um, the little piece I want to take you to take away, or there's a couple of little pieces I want you to take away, and this has been. Um, deeply affected me over this last year but here is Jesus in the wilderness talking to these two guys and in his spirit form he walks them through the scripture and that wilderness term which is used repeatedly in the new testament is a ramos and when Jesus started his ministry, this short three-year stint on earth, the first thing he did is went, went and spent six weeks in the Aramos. Now, hey, come on, Jesus, it's only three years. You've got to get out there. You've got to meet people. You've got to network. He went and spent six weeks in the wilderness. And, you know, people tend to think, oh, you know, he was fasting and he was hungry and he was weak and he was exhausted. I think what was going on in the Eremos was this communion with the Father that he had to engage in in an extended, focused way to get the strength and the presence and the wisdom and the guidance to know how to take on the devil at the end of the six weeks, who to pick in the ministry of the disciples, which village to go to. And this was born out of six weeks in the Eremos, in the wilderness. And this picture of Jesus walking with these two guys, and even with Mary, they were in the Aramos. Mary's in the garden by herself. These guys are on the road by themselves in the wilderness. And in that environment, the spirit Jesus comes and speaks and reveals and releases. And so this um, behaviour or this way of Jesus I think is a revelation for us and is a revelation for the church that until we learn how to get our time in the eremos we're going to be empty of power. We're going to be busy doing jobs. We're going to be serving and busy and being holy and looking good. If we don't have our time in the Eremos and we don't have it regularly, we're going to be powerless because that's where it happens. And Jesus regularly went to the Eremos. The crowds were gathering. No, I've got to go up to the mountain to pray. disciples saying, come and heal the sick. No, I'm going to spend time with my father. Before the crucifixion, you know, he's on the Mount of Olives, sweating in communion with his father at this incredible moment. And right through the Gospels, this retreat to the Eremos empowered Jesus. And so that is a way of the kingdom and it's a way for us. We have to learn how to retreat to the Ramos and let the spirit of God, the explosive spirit of God, talk into our hearts. And if we're not getting that time, don't even dream about big encounters for the king. It's so counterintuitive. We think busyness, activity, events, service is the source of changing the world no it's the oramos it's the quiet place it's the place where focus is totally on him it's the place around the scriptures we have to learn how to get into the scriptures we're not talking about bible college we're not talking about um you know doing courses we're talking about you sitting in the scriptures and taking time inviting the Holy Spirit to say, speak to me, I need to hear, I need to understand this passage, I need to meditate on the word of God. Now, that's very daunting for many, because, hey, uh, you know, I don't read English, maybe, for some. I I failed comprehension at, at, at high school. I can't concentrate for more than two minutes. Yeah, these are all problems, but they're not problems. For Jesus, he sees a man or a woman sit with him in the scriptures. That's the environment. He overcomes comprehension. He overcomes proper theology. He overcomes um, all the issues that stop us from doing that because he operates that way. So counterintuitive. So we look at a, a group of people like us. There's nothing stopping us from changing the world. There's nothing stopping us from releasing this explosive power that happened on the road to Emmaus, except us not dwelling in the Oremos and letting God infuse and be with us and speak to us and guide us. So that, you know, that's an easy thing to say. But for years, you know, in my world, the Ramos has been important. It, you know, I became a believer at 12 and, and you know, in sort of a simple, naive fashion, someone said, oh, you should read the Scripture Union notes every day and I've done it ever since. <laughs> but um, my wife, you know, she just loves going into the Ramos and she's been a, a rock for me because she just loves to spend that time. She, she talks about it like chocolate, that when you taste the Ramos... You just want another bite. You want another block. And uh, she loves to do that. Um, you know, I've, we've heard some stories. Like we heard Tiff and Ben last week. You know, they've got six kids. And they've got busy jobs, you know. And Ben says, I have to get up at 4.30 now to spend time in the ramos. And Tiff's been walking with them as they go down. They walk in the morning in the dark. You know, the, the day has to start now early for them. Jen was telling us and Jason, you know, they go for walks early anyway as part of their sort of lifestyle. But Jen's getting up an hour earlier just to sit in the scriptures. And this is the kind of um, methodology and behavior that is so important, however it works for you. And, uh, you know, some might be at night, some might be twice a week, whatever. This personal time in the Eremos is the engine room of the future. And each of us will have stories. I mean, I long for the day in our guys' groups where the guys say, oh, I got this out of the Eremos. And another guy says, yes, sir, I, <laughs> let's go. And uh, that what bubbles out of our lives is the stories of our Eremos times. scripture said this. I feel the Holy Spirit's leading this. I dwelt with him and I heard these whispers or there was this coincidence of events or someone else said the same in their time and the Spirit of God is talking. That's how it works. That's how it works. God talks to us. Now, one of the big hurdles we have, it is such a big hurdle, is our culture and our... Sort of, do it if it feels good. Culture, and our busy culture. I don't have time for that. That's the first. That's the first answer. You know, uh, when I sit still, my mind goes crazy about all the jobs I've got to do today, and and uh, you know I just got to get on with. It. I can't concentrate. Or why would I do that? You know, why would I do that? Because I could, you know, I could read a book or I could listen to a podcast, or which are all good things. Let, but this piece is so important, I can't overstate it, and the piece of the culture that is so insidious, that is just ramping up every day, you know, we're we're at the men's breakfast, we're talking about, you know, there was some quite candid conversation about the addictions of men, and you know some guy shared their story and that gave permission for other people to share their story and you know there are all these sorts of addictions but one of the in my mind one of the most sinister addictions which is attacking all of us not just the men and this is where the story of the osmosis comes in is the culture of social media it is an addiction You know, the guys who invented it... I don't know, has anyone seen the uh, documentary Social Dilemma? The guys who invented the social media platforms, most of them have resigned now and don't want anything to do with it. They prohibit their children from engaging in any social media because they, from the inside, have seen the toxic nature of social media. And, you know, social media to some extent is a helpful tool, but it's an insidious addiction. And these guys have tapped into the, the brain loves a dopamine hit. You know, you still love the day you get a letter. That was a little dopamine hit in the letterbox. Oh, someone's written me a letter. And, <laughs> and, oh, it's a bill. <laughs> <laughs> but the little, the little spark of dopamine that goes off in our brain it's now been multiplied just to an extreme dimension where messaging, photos, news, pics, um, Instagrams, whatever, are just so much become part of our, our world, our dopamine dispensers going off constantly, 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 constantly. We're getting hits, we're getting addicted to wanting to see it and we're getting addicted to just our mind needing activity. And so when it comes time to go to the Ramos, it's, it's impossible to switch off. We've, you know, we, we can't leave our phones. And our mind, even if we leave our phones, is ticking, ticking, ticking. We have a battle on this front. And we particularly have a battle with our kids if they're ever going to get into the Ramos. Now, I've asked John, I don't hope I haven't stole too much of your thunder, but to talk in to the kids' story with regard to social media.
1: Quite ironic, I have to use my phone for notes, but anyway. Um, yeah, I think social media is, in, is interesting. I, I, growing up, I didn't have social media until about first year of high school. So I had a a kind of that generation of people who didn't have it and then had it. And I must admit, I was a lot happier as a kid without it. Um, You know, back when it first came in for me, you had MSN, I think it was MSN Messenger. You had MySpace, which, um, yeah, is is gone now. But, um, yeah, they were very interesting. And I think um, they're very addictive uh, when you first started, You know, you can suddenly talk to... My friend after school, not just I'm just hanging at my home, and I can I can't have to wait till the next day at school to talk to them. Um, or you could start to post things about yourself, and so people really started to have these really bad profile pictures of themselves, like you know, like that. Um, and I look back in some of mine, and I'm like, what was I thinking? Like <laughs> I had a big afro, and you know, just dorky. Um, and I think, yeah, you, you, it was a very unique experience in that sense for, I think, Sam, probably the same, you know, same age, same, same age, same income. Um, yeah, we had the same experience. Um, one of the scriptures I had was 10 Corinthians uh, 23. It says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now, like Vaughan was saying, there is some positive things to social media as like, you can follow our youth group page and keep up with the events. Um, You know, you you can keep up to date with friends over, you know, long distance. Like I've got messenger groups with guys who I talk to, um, who I can't see face to face and that keeps me in touch with them. Uh, Yeah, it can be a network for people, you know, networking for different things for work. And and, um, I have a work Facebook page too. Um, and it can be a way to self-express and you know, um, promote your business or promote different things. Um, but for teenagers, I think there's some really thing, key things because their brains are wired in such a way that they don't have the same, like it's saying, it's not so much a right or wrong thing, it's knowing what's beneficial and what's constructive. And sometimes their brains don't know how to actually decide that. Um, and so some of the things with social media, is that it can be distracting from God, from your friends, and from your family. It can take you out of action. Um, You know, there's been times in my life where I just got, you know, I'm needing that hit, I'm needing that dopamine to get away from the reality, and the online world becomes the reality, and it becomes this fantasy in your head where you almost create this secondary self, which is your online self, and you have the real self. And people go online looking for approval. They go online looking for affirmation, for attention. Like, no one posts, oh, I just committed this massive sin. It was epic, you know. Matchy match. (laughs) Like, or something like that. Like, no one does that. Like, you know, no, you don't see a guy going, oh, I just had a four-hour, watch porn for four hours or something like that. You just don't see it. Like, everyone's putting their best front forward. You know, they're creating this unrealistic view of themselves. Um, and their alter ego almost on there. And um, you can go crying out there. For, you know, your Insecurities really come through. I see it so often with you know, young people. is They're putting these things forward. They're crying out for love. They're crying out for all these things that what Vaughan's talking about, this power, they're crying out for it. But they're looking at this on the social media page or these things where they're looking at other people's lives and they're going, I want what they have. And it creates this anxiety and they can actually... Uh, link now studies have shown they did one in 2019 with more than 6,500 12 to 15 year olds and they found that those who spent three hours a day using social media had heightened risk for mental health problems Um, and then they did another one in england which found which they linked can link it now with anxiety and depression and so they can link social media there with it Um, and so they really recommend like i remember when I was a chaplain, we had this guru guy f- come in and speak about this stuff. And beyond six o'clock, like it, their brains just get mushed <laughs> um, using it, and they become that. There's that addictiveness where they can. It's in their. They know it's in their pocket, and it's like it's like a drug addict essentially who needs that drug hit. They need that. Um, and I, I think it's really important looking at as adults. Are we role modeling? How are we role modeling? that usage to them. Um, I'm always convicted, you know, from social media during youth. I'm like, oh, get off, get off, you know. like. So it's like just having that awareness of what we're doing. Um, and setting limits, I think, is really important too, like not just letting them... Um, they actually say in the studies, like the kids who uh, resist parents, like who are wanting to set limits can actually make the, the kid more depressed because they can just do whatever they want around it. And um, I think God really wants them to be free to have that time to spend in their presence. But, you know, as families, when we have that time together in you know, spending time in prayer, reading the Word, you know, I think um, Sam's dad is a great example, Rod, um, how he gets Levi and Brianna, you know, to reading reading the Word, they pray, they do things together as a family. And even seeing that inspires me, you know, with my own kids one day to have that. Um, But, yeah, I want to see the youth just, you know, really set free in that area, you know, not addicted not controlled by their phones because, at the end of the day, we want humans who can talk to humans. Because in a job, you have to talk to real people. <laughs> um, you you don't just go up to them and go oh, hi. <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, i on the phone talking on the phone to people every day. I'd rather be face to face. You know, um, that's always the best. But yeah, that's all I have to say.
0: Yeah, such a big topic, and and. Thanks, John. So many pieces there to, to take on board. And, you know, as parents, one of, as John said, one of the best things is to be talking about our Ramos times to our kids and building those habits into them when we, if we get the chance. But this, you know, there's so many things coming against us to, to actually create a culture and a personal space for this. But I want to pray for us tonight. We need to finish. I want to pray for you and your um, engagement with the Spirit of God. You're taking time to do that. you you, you're working out how to settle and quiet your mind. You're working out how to sit in the Scriptures. Some, for some of us, that's so daunting. We have no idea how to do that. So let me pray. Holy Spirit, how amazing. We have a room full of Cleopasas. How amazing. Holy Spirit, thank you that the heavens shifted so we have access to you in our hearts. No more heavy burdens, no more rules and regulations like the Pharisees, but my burden is My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This whole new way of operating with Jesus inside us, revealing. I pray for our hearts. I pray for the battle. I pray for the dopamine distraction. I pray against it, our minds. I pray over the culture of busyness and activity. We pray for the counterintuitive spirit of Jesus to bring rest, to bring communion, to learn how to abide, to learn how to wait, to learn how to hear the whispers, to learn how to release this force of Jesus of amazing love, of signs and wonders. Lord, create in our hearts this culture. Create in our church this culture. Create in our midst an explosive portal for the kingdom of God to touch the world. Thank you for this amazing picture. Come and explode into our hearts and minds, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So... I want you to think about what end of the Emmaus Road are you on? Are you in the chaos, panic, freak out? What the heck? Disappointment? Distrust? End? Or are you on the the road with Jesus, discovering who this character is, who I don't really recognise but is attractive to me? My heart's burning as I hear this story unfold. Is that you? Or have you had a, an encounter around the table, the meal, where you decide, I'm going for it. I am going for it. Back into the chaos with this invisible spirit of Jesus just rocking the boat. You know, Lou Engle, I heard an interview with him this week. Anyone know who Lou Engle is? A few people. He is one of the fathers of the prayer movement in the US and has birthed so many movements. Had 400,000 young people on the mall in Washington, D.C. to pray for the country 20 years ago. He is just a giant and has birthed so many movements. And he's talking about a new movement that's coming. You know what his key scripture is? Song of Songs 8, 6, and 7, which is fasten God upon your heart as a seal of fire forevermore. He's saying the revival and the movement that's coming is a movement of fire on the heart of the individual. And that's, that's the, what we're talking about here. These disciples, they, their hearts were firing, they were burning. That's the revival. And the other thing Lou Ingle said is it's around the issue of communion and the blood. And what did the guys do? They had communion with Jesus in this passage and that's when they went back because they understood the broken body, the spilt blood of Jesus releases this power. So let's fasten him upon our heart in the Eremos. Let's let this fire burn and be the engine room of whatever he wants. I don't know what it is for each one of us, but it'll be amazing. It'll be exciting. Fasten him upon your heart as a seal of fire forevermore. Amen.